Hunter Biden, guilty. Donald Trump, unrepentant. Conservative free market economics, toast. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the notorious M.B.D., Michael Brendan Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Made in Cookware. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD breaking news as we gather this morning to record on a Tuesday, as we usually do, Hunter Biden has pled guilty to tax charges and a gun charge. This is very much a plea deal. He's not getting nailed to the wall the way some people on the right had hoped for. What do you make of it? Well, it, I mean, Hunter Biden is a very troubled uh, person and he has tax problems and uh, legal problems with his guns, and this is what he's pled to. I mean, this kind of isn't the the main show for conservatives is interest in Biden's over, you know, Hunter Biden's overseas dealings in Ukraine and China, and whether Joe played any role in that or profited from it. This is just sort of like an an amuse bouche mm-hmm. for the main course, mm-hmm. uh, and um, so, uh, but in in some ways, this might. I, I think the media is going to try to cauterize the Hunter Biden story by saying, like, yep. hey, look, he took the plea deal. You know, he's obviously a troubled guy. His legal problems are his own. Why don't you, uh, you know, let him pay his price um, in peace? Uh, I don't think conservatives are going to let that happen because um, there's still anger over how the last weeks of the 2020 campaign went. But. This is where we are for now. Yeah, so no, I'm totally with MBD. I, re- I really don't care that Hunter Biden didn't pay taxes or this this gun thing. Obviously reckless and illegal, but he was out of his mind on drugs. And it's not really the main event. The, the main event is Biden family corruption. And the risk of this deal is there'll be an attempt to say, look, the, the Biden Justice Department held his, his own son to account is isn't that fair and responsible and otherwise nothing to see here yeah it's it's sort of somewhere in the middle there so the incentives that you encounter when you're in a business like ours is to um, mirror the audience's emotional state and the emotional state is maximally persecuted maximally frustrated at the subversion of justice because look at Donald Trump evaluating Hunter Biden's condition in light of what's happening to Donald Trump. And the line is pretty simple, and we're seeing it from everybody from the commentary class to lawmakers this morning, Republican lawmakers, that no Republican would have gotten a similar deal. The operative word there is deal, a plea agreement between two opposing teams of mutually antagonistic attorneys that produces a mutually agreeable solution, that set of charges. So they pleaded down tax evasion charges here, which would have been just, the charge was over-reporting business expenses, um, which is a statutory crime, and it's one that is subject to negotiating down. Any negotiation. We have ample evidence to suggest that the Justice Department had no intention of charging Donald Trump 
if he had produced the documents he said he produced in January of 2022, had not signed on to misleading false statements with his attorneys, and subsequently, according to allegations, uh, ordered his subordinates to hide the evidence. They begged to have a confrontation with the DOJ, which is your right. You have every right to fight these charges in every way you, you see fit, and it'll be a more antagonistic process than the deal that's hashed out. Republicans do benefit from certain deals. Chris Collins was, he pled, pled guilty to, uh, to um, insider, charge, or insider uh, trading charges and misleading federal investigators. And what did he get? One year of supervised release and a $200,000 fine. It does happen across the board. If you cooperate with uh, the Justice Department, they do go easier on you than if you don't. This is not something that's new. This isn't a conspiracy. This isn't a persecution, an effort to persecute Republicans particularly. So I resent the incentive structure here that's being imposed on us to be really, really mad at the idea that there is some sort of bizarre double standard being executed here when the behavior that is being compared with everybody else from Mike Pence to Chris Collins to Hunter Biden is distinct in so many different ways that make it a, a unique case, sui generis, and we should treat it that way. So, Charlie, what, what do you think of how the, the gun charge in particular was handled here? Well, I think the deal to which Hunter Biden came with the federal government is likely to be an enormous relief to President Biden this pre-diversion program, which essentially avoids a trial, removes the need or the temptation for Hunter Biden's lawyers to make arguments in his defense that would have been profoundly embarrassing politically to Joe Biden. I, of course, can't know what would have happened, and I probably will never know now, but it seemed as if the best legal defense of Hunter Biden's drug use while in possession of a firearm was that the laws that made that behavior illegal were under the recent Bruin decision unconstitutional. And that may well have been the case. The problem for Joe Biden, of course, is that he has throughout his career been strongly in favor of the prohibition of drugs, strongly in favor of the regulation of firearms, strongly in favor of any law in which those two prohibitions intersected, and he was vocally opposed to the Bruin decision. So those of us who follow American gun law were watching this with great interest. Would the son of the incumbent president go into court and either himself or his lawyers make the case that all of those proposals that the president talks about in his stump speech were actually in violation of the U.S. Constitution. That will not happen now. So, MBD, the other thing that's been going on in the, the legal realm, uh, Noah made a uh, oblique reference to this, is the Donald Trump interview on Brett Baer last night where there's a lot of talk of the documents case. Trump, you know, didn't have much of a, a legal defense. Basically, it's like, look, I was busy. There are a lot of golf pants in, the, in these boxes, too. So I, I needed to go through them, and I had other stuff going on. 
And then making this argument that doesn't doesn't hold up about the Presidential Records Act and how it lets him keep the stuff and for for as long as long as he wants or two years or whatever it is to kind of sort through on his own time, even if the government's asking for them. But I just think uh, at the political level, this is this was a home run for for Trump, and it's not. That's not sliding in any way. Brett Baer's performance, he was prepared, he was strong. I mean, he's Brett Baer is one of the best interviewers in the business, you know, much better than that Caitlin Collins who got run over by Trump at the CNN town hall. But just Trump on the legal stuff, he just needs a couple things to say. Presidential Records Act, sock drawer case, right. and this is unfair. Everyone else did it, and Biden had 1,850 boxes. And I just think politically is the case he needs to make now. He, he wants to win a, pre- a nomination and wants to become president so he can squash the case. And as you were pointing out in our uh, chatter before we started recording, Jason, Jason Willock, the uh, columnist that the Washington Post points out, there's also a jury nullification strategy here if you make a really strong political case against the, the indictment. And then overall, you know, I thought Trump was, was sincerely not grading for Trump. Uh, strong on on some of the substance stuff. You know, we're going to drill. We're going to close down the border. We're going to re- reignite the economy. Kind of, sort of normal sort of you know substantive pledges such a candidate would make. And then on the the Trump metrics, dominant, s- strong. It's hard to see any other candidate kind of putting in this sort of performance, especially when such a candidate had had any anything like you know one eighth of the vulnerabilities that Trump has. So despite your your um, unaccustomed, uncharacteristic optimism about the state of the Republican race. This had me thinking, ah, who's, who's going to beat this guy? Who, who's going to top it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have faith in things unseen, which is that eventually the laws of gravity will apply to Trump. Uh, maybe I'm totally wrong. Um, I mean, I wrote a column last week that applies to this a little bit where I theorized that once someone credibly submits themselves as a candidate for president, that the American people tend to jealously guard their prerogative as the sole and final judge of that person through the vote, uh, and tend to dismiss the legal uh, charges or political capers against those those candidates as mere you know partisan griping. Um, and I think that I think that that is operative here. And um, you're right. Like I, I looked. I was watching that interview with my biases and my priors, which are that I'm done with Trump. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think he can put together an effective administration. I don't think he put together a very effective one the first time. Uh, although there were some very good policy wins along the way. Um, I don't think he can do it again. I don't. I'm very doubtful he can win again. I, I mean, he could win, but I don't think I would bet on it. And um, you know, I thought the interview was devastating for him. But you know, when I kind of looked at some of the reaction on Facebook from other friends who are fans of Donald Trump, they thought he crushed it. And mm-hmm. de- de- he, devastating, just. Uh, on the legal stuff, and then you know, on how many of his former officials or have denounced him? Or yeah, that's that's exactly mm. it. That, that like you know, I thought that that point by Brett Baer is one of the strongest ones to make against Trump, which is you said you were going to hire the best people, yeah, and yet your secretaries of state, two national security advisors, and dozens of other very high ranking officials are all against you. Um, what happened? And and of course, you've since called them all these 
idiotic yeah, insults, yeah. <laughs> um, right? So, like, why weren't they the best people, and why wouldn't it be? What would be different the next time? Yeah. So, and, so no, that 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 clip went viral, and I, I do think that was the, the worst moment for. If you put aside the the technicalities of the legal case, <laughs> that was the worst moment for Trump. Well, I mean, I, I depart from your assessment of the interview um, generally, um, in part because there were two points. There was the legal questions that were posed to him, and there was the political questions that were posed to him. And the legal questions, you know, there was a, a blizzard of, of rhetoric. Um, but one of the answers that he gave when he was asked about particularly uh, the obstruction charges, the uh, misleading investigators and moving stuff around, he was asked why he didn't comply. He just simply didn't comply in January and then signed on to attested to false statements related that suggested that he had complied. And he said, uh, I want to go through the boxes. I didn't and I didn't get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand over to NR, to NARA yet. And adding, and I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. There's no too busy or I don't want to clause that allows but, but you no, to what avoid. If had, what if NARA had ended up with, with a pair of his khakis? Could he have I, that? Could the, could the country they, sustain that? They might have had to return them, perhaps. But quite simply, I don't want to is not an excuse for failing to comply with subpoenas for evidence before a grand jury. Point of fact. I mean, it amounts to an admission of guilt. Secondarily, on the questions, uh, the political questions, one of the things that Republicans dislike most, according to polling, about what Donald Trump chooses to focus on is that he doesn't focus on things that are relevant to them. He focuses on things that are relevant to him, the foremost among them being the 2020 election. And Brett Baird asked him, how are, you, how are you going to appeal to the suburban women who abandoned you and cost you the 2020 election? To which his, his reply was, first of all, I won the 2020 election. I won in 2020 by a lot, okay? And he went on to issue this flurry of inscrutable half sentences that, are, that amount to an argument in his head, but don't come out of his mouth in any intelligible fashion. Some sentences. You take a look at Truth the Vote, where they have people stuffing the ballot boxes on tape. You take a look at all the stuffed ballots. You take a look at all the things, including things like the 51 intelligence agents. And, quote, FBI Twitter, which I assure you was a complete sentence. <laughs> Nothing followed that. <laughs> no idea. The slightest clue. But all of this exists in his head as a cogent argument in favor of the idea that he really won in 2020, and he really, really, really likes litigating that issue. All his passion is devoted to that issue. So if that was the argument in favor of Donald Trump 2024, and he's going to make it on stage, which he will, he'll be asked about this stuff on the debate stage, and Republicans are going to have to be on record on it. I don't think it's a very salient argument that will appeal to Republicans who are not already, who are not already subordinating their intellectual capacity to evaluate this guy in any sort of neutral fashion to the emotional satisfaction they get from stuffing it to all the right people. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know, Charlie. I, I think if, if that were a deal breaker, the, the deal would have been broken a, a long time ago. And maybe, you know, I, I'm not I'm not saying it's impossible or things things won't change or, or at the end there, there won't be a, a moment of clarity or Republicans step, step back for the, the brink to uh, avoid potential electoral destruction. I think Trump can win, but as we've talked about, you know, it's a risky proposition. But um, it's not as though Trump's saying anything new there. I think that the efficacy of his performance once again depends on where within the system you're looking. That was a disastrous performance 
for his legal case. It was a disastrous performance with general election voters who already don't like him, who think that he deserved to be indicted, who are tired of the drama, and who think he spends far too much time talking about 2020. I'm not sure that was a disastrous performance for the purposes of the Republican primary. Michael outlined the dichotomy well. He looked at that and thought, ugh. Then he spoke to some people who, with all due respect to Michael's friends, are probably <laughs> less They're the rational. best people. Michael's friends are the best people. And they liked it. And that is the problem that Republicans have right now, is that the country and potential juror pools keep saying, what the hell, man? And then the camera pans around, and those who will be deciding who the Republicans put up against Joe Biden are dancing in the streets. And at the moment, at least, these two groups never meet one another. They have not come to blows. So was it a success? Well, yeah, it was a success in the short term if the aim, which it is, is for Donald Trump to win the Republican primary. Was it a success for Donald Trump in his inevitable trial? No. Was it a success for Donald Trump or the Republican Party or the broader conservative movement or independent voters or the future of America? No, it wasn't. But we are only in primary mode at the moment, and he's inexplicably doing what needs to be done. MBDX, question to you. Some point in the not-too-distant future, in a state poll or international poll, Ron DeSantis will be in third place, falling behind someone or other. Yes or no? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Tim Scott or someone will, will jump ahead of him at one point. Especially and, if Tim Scott keeps making news. And uh, then, then what happens? DeSantis will come back. We'll, 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 we're going to see a lot of money get spent, a lot of time get spent in these states, and there's going to be debates. He's going to get a forum, and I, he can make a great case. He's a very effective governor, and um, we'll, see, you know, we'll see where it all lands. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not worried about the polls just yet. I mean... And again, I've always felt that Donald Trump is running a kind of incumbents campaign mm -hmm. and incumbents should not be below 80%. He's mm -hmm. below, and basically half the party is saying we're not sold on Donald Trump. So I find the future very unpredictable. Noah. Yes, in a state poll, not a national poll. I'm not sure what, maybe in North Carolina or uh, New Hampshire or South Carolina. And... And to the follow-up, what happens next is the donor class gets real spooked. Um, and they start looking around for alternatives. And, and Ron DeSantis' big advantage, his primary advantage, not the narrative for Ron DeSantis' campaign, but the nuts and bolts, is that he's a, he's a powerhouse fundraiser. And if that starts to disappear on him, then you get a lot of, well, maybe this guy's a spent force, actually. And there, there'll, that'll, that might be a news cycle that just pops and disappears, and it might not be based on anything other than apprehension in the, among the anti-Trump uh, partisans in the Republican coalition, such as they are, as Michael says. But I can totally see it happening. Charlie? 
Yeah, I think Noah's right that we'll see it in a state poll. I don't think we'll see it nationally. I have no idea whether he'll come back. I'm going to say yes. And yeah, it's either sometimes this happens and the candidate has some resilience and and finds something and bumps back up. And then sometimes it happens and you never hear them again. It would not be uncommon for that to happen. You really, John McCain had a near death experience. Mm -hmm. George H.W. or George W. Bush had a near death experience. I mean, you you almost need one to demonstrate that you can come back. Joe Biden had a. Right. And it's been having them uh, weekly since he became president. (laughs) So George W. Bush loses a a primary, and then uh, sorry, sorry, I missed what was what was said. I missed it. Well, I pointed out in seriously. I pointed out that Joe Biden had a near-death experience, and then I (laughs) noted less seriously that he's having them weekly since he won. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and the thing was, McCain and Kerry were kind of presumed front runners. McCain was a front runner and then fell off a cliff and had to carry his own luggage around and then found something and and came, came back. I don't know whether Kerry was actually the front runner, but certainly a lot of people thought he was going to be, it was so bad for John Kerry in, in 2004, he he was so left for dead that I spent like 45 minutes sitting next to him in his campaign bus interviewing him because there was no one else to talk to him. (laughs) Um, but the thing is, with Santos, it's not as though he was ever the front runner, right? He he was like a, a strong second place guy. So you know he, he he'll need to recover just to get to there. But we'll see. With with that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode. In fact, our sole exclusive only sponsor, Made in Cookware. We have Made in Frying Pans here in our kitchen, and they are awesome. Made in was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made restaurant-quality cookware. Made in's award-winning non-stick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade non-stick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. We found this all to be true. Our made-in pans are great to handle, cook evenly, and very importantly, they are easy to clean. And I say this as a guy who spends a lot of time standing at the kitchen sink cleaning dishes. So made-in cookware gets our highest recommendation, and especially my wife's recommendation. And right now, editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from made-in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. Please check it out. Out. So Noah, we have a bunch of heretics gathering in Washington D.C., led by I believe in Washington D.C., led by our uh, friend and uh, sometime colleague. He's written for us uh, over the years, Oren Cass, um, and there's a continuing effort to r- redefine what conservative economics means. And J.D. Vance, our friend Tom Cotton. Marco Rubio, uh, some others will be speaking to various uh, initiatives that do not fully line up with free market principles in an effort to make conservative economics more practical, more working class uh, oriented, and less theoretically 
pure, which these folks argue has been a mistake. What do you make of it? Well, this came to me via David Leonard's New York Times uh, morning newsletter, um, in which the columnist bathes Republicans who are turning against markets in a, just a left-wing love fest. It's a sign of the consensus in Washington is moving away from the neoliberal laissez-faire approach that has dominated since the 1980s, uh, distancing themselves from, quote, anti-government Republicans, anti-government Republicans, like Paul Ryan, and though they won't say so, Ronald Reagan. Uh, and he talks about how these, uh, these economic policies, conservative economic policies, have uh, harmed poorer Americans, uh, that they're out of touch with the, co the country generally. Um, that they show that the Republican Party is, quote, starting to grapple with the economy's true challenges. It was nauseating. And I fundamentally reject the premise that Orrin Cass is operating from. Quote, we really like capitalism. He brings capitalism to the into the conversation, not me. But we recognize it's not working now. Capitalism is a complex system dependent on rules and institutions. Well, not really. Capitalism, as we understand it, is a spontaneous order. Rules and institutions are required to prevent anti-competitive practices from arising among associations between men that thwart the formation of those spontaneous associations. This is the essence of market economics. The frustration that arises on the new populist right is that uh, market economics, capitalism generally, has contributed to the perceived atomization and social isolation in society and thwarted the formation of enduring communitarian bonds. In fact, progressive alternatives to competition that are predicated on government intervention to economic life are far more likely to strain communitarian bonds. They're far more likely to crowd out associations like families, churches, civic associations, activists, or mediating institutions, community centers, name it. Those are the sources of human fulfillment and belonging that these people rightly focus on they are justified in their frustration with the atrophying of these institutions, but they exist independent of economic life. They are not dependent upon economic interventions from Washington or economics generally. Those are crowded out by the ever-expanding state. So to use the apparatus of the state to change the economic terms in order to create an a, a ideal community that exists in Orrin Cass's head has been a frustrating experience for them because I think their prescriptions are wrong. The diagnosis is right, but the prescriptions are off base. MBD. So, Noah, did you just argue that what Marx liked about capitalism is good? That it destroys families and communities and, and bonds? No, uh, not at all. I said, uh, okay. I said the opposite. But it, then he's saying socialism does those things, right? Right. But it but crowds saying, out and strains communitarian associations. By engineering so you, them from above. So you don't acknowledge that that markets can do those things, or market forces can do those things. Market forces can do those things, but it's okay. a natural condition. Raging so, against it is like raging against the weather. Yeah, so that's where I totally disagree. Um, markets are created by law. Laws, it, laws previous to the market. The what, what you described as capitalism is the ambition and appetite for self improvement among peoples, those, th those ambitions are enacted within a matrix of rules. And you don't have, I mean, it is not true that the freer the economy, uh, you know, the, 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 the freer of constraint that the more we get community. I mean, it's like we had a giant trade embargo against 
basically a third of the planet for most of the Cold War, and our churches were stronger, our family life was stronger than it is now. Um, so those aren't those aren't related uh, in my view at all. The question is what do what what do the laws and regulations on the market actually encourage? Do they encourage investment in the American workforce? Or do they discourage investment in the American workforce and encourage investment in foreign workforces or elsewhere? I mean, uh, if you look at the proposal on American Compass, this uh, handbook for conservative policymakers, about a third of it is stuff that I don't think anyone at National Review would disagree with. Stuff like, like, like worker training. Sort of well, stuff. no, enforce legal constraints on supply of low la- wage labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, make all jobs regulation. Make all jobs ones that Americans will do. You know, as in like we're going to cut down the H one B visas, uh, or repeal the uh, National Environmental Protection Act, or you know, um, which is what. Uh, Compared to a classic free marketeer, how is that different? I think he's getting to that, though. He's saying a third we'd we'd all agree with about a, about a third of the stuff you'd all agree with, but the other stuff is like is I mean, are we really describing America's re- trade relationship with China as a free market relationship? I mean, we have all we have like thousands and thousands of pages governing the actual trade that does exist between China and the United States or between South Korea and the United States or between Japan and the United States. And that, that guide, what we're actually sending over there or what they're sending over here and what, what schedules they're paying, what schedules we're paying uh, to do so. And, you know, they do nations pursue this with their long-term interests in mind, not all of which are, for the lowest prices, right? I mean, that's why there's still farming done in America. That's why there's still farming done in Europe, even though American and European wage demands are so high. You know, you could push all farming and labor into, you could push all beef production into Brazil for an economic effect, but no one would like the environmental effect or the potential for disaster of, a, of that supply chain uh, in um, an emergency. I think... I think um, it is. I think the most controversial aspect of what Cass is arguing for is the long-term elimination of trade deficits. Uh, I think that's where he's running into the biggest headwinds on on the right. Uh, but he he takes the view that even Adam Smith basically had this view. Like Adam Smith's idea of competitive advantage was not one where capital and people float over borders as easily as goods. In fact, Smith was basically uh, theorizing based on the idea that capital didn't do such things, that capital was being invested domestically everywhere. Um, So I I, I think there's a lot to learn from here. I think also I think Cass's description of some of the problems we're having in the modern economy is compelling one. His cost of thriving index where he takes – a bundle of goods, basically housing, education, medical care, and a tuition—you know, uh, a semester's tuition of college—and uh, points out that in 1980, uh, 42 weeks of one uh, median age wage earner's uh, paycheck could pay for those things, and now it requires over 60 weeks. Yeah, but those, those are all a, things that that government ha- has had a role in. Of course that. Of course, so that's not a solution. It's an observation. 
It is an observation, but it's an observation that the the current, like, none of us would look at the current setup and say, this is free market capitalism, pure and simple. This is the status quo and it's unchallengeable. So this is one... No, and the anarchic ideal, as you describe it, wages would collapse to be equivalent with the rest of the world. What do you mean in what are an anarchic ideal? In, in a completely unregulated, borderless capitalist planet. Right. That's, but that's, that's, that would be like an Orrin cast point, though, right? It, or, Orrin's point yeah, it would, would be, but it right, supports that the idea gone, that there's... We've gone I mean, there's no such thing. We've gone right. in that direction. And also, I, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. But David Leonard engages in some. You're interrupting Charlie's attempts to interrupt, and that's, that's yeah, this is terrible. But even Leonard engages in some category errors here by saying that restricting non-compete clauses is functionally an uh, anti-market practice. Non-competes are anti-competitive, but it's a legal argument about whether government has that right. It's not about uh, markets per se or capitalism per se. Anyway, I'm sorry. So let's let's let Charlie get in. Yeah, but, yeah. Anyway, yeah, Charlie. Well, I listened a year or so ago when you interviewed Oren Cass Rich, and he didn't give you very many answers on the podcast that you did, but one of them was that he wanted a form of industrial policy. And I must confess to being just as suspicious of industrial policy when it comes from the center-right as when it comes from the left, because I do not believe that it will work. In the piece that we're talking about, Marco Rubio proposes that we have a German system where there is more of a role for unions to play in the management of business. I don't think that that, whether it comes from Marco Rubio or from Elizabeth Warren, is going to improve the state of American capitalism. And I think it's important here to look at America, particularly, rather than at the world or at economic theory. Leave aside for a moment whether or not I am right about the desirability of industrial policy per se. One of the things that Kevin Williamson always points out and is correct about is that Americans are different than, say, the Swiss or the Germans or the British or the Indonesians. Unions in Germany operate differently than unions in the United States. We have, at the moment, I'm given to understand, a problem with union power per se. The way that unions have been woven into our politics, the way they funnel money, the way they play both sides of the table by negotiating with the governments that they fund. Does Marco Rubio really think that increasing, by law, by explicit design, the role that unions play within our economy is going to redound to the benefit of the United States in all of the other ways that he wants? Does Oren Cass really think, as a self-professed conservative, that the best thing we could do right now is hand more power to the government? I think there is a total lack of consistent thinking here. You see this in a different context with people like Adrian Vermeule. That we should grant more authority to government institutions that are stacked to the hilt with progressives. 
Even if in theory, and I don't think he is, but even if in theory, Oren Cass and Marco Rubio and others were correct, within the American context, as it actually exists at the moment, the last thing you want to do is pass laws giving the federal government power to make industrial policy or weave unions more closely into corporate American life. That would be utterly crazy. And sometimes you hear the same people who propose this complaining about the way that our institutions have been taken over. The long march through them has been completed, we are told correctly. Come on! Yeah, so, um, so, so MBD, this is something, you know, Mar- Marco is basically pro-union now. And this is one of the things where, in theory, you tell me it, it'd be a good thing if workers have more power, more leverage. Like, yeah, you know, why not? And then you get to the nuts and bolts, and it goes to the point Charlie was making. Well, what are unions now? You know, they, they overwhelmingly represent government workers, you know, and graduate students, and they, they organize and get a big pool of money to spend against every cause, that conservative and organize against every cause that conservatives hold dear. So how, right. how do you think well, about the, the worker element? Well, the, that's, I mean, the, uh, the difficulty for, for Cass. And I, I believe for me, this is the biggest difficulty is the union question is he wants to destroy the unions that exist now and replace mm-hmm. them with sectoral bargaining, mm-hmm. which is the model right. that you get in, in German. Germany. Else, so where yeah. Ch- loves every pro pro German, and the idea, and the idea, we don't the have idea, a German culture. Well, the idea being that <laughs> the, union, the union also trains workers and helps match them with jobs, rather than just tries to protect existing job holders. And the, and the unions themselves become, uh, you know, advocates for the expansion of the market for the the products that they're making. Right. So the prerequisite and, to Cass's idea is that we remake American society. Because that's no, not I, how it operates. No, you it's a, you, remake, have a, you remake the Department of Labor. Culture. You remake the Department of Labor. No, I mean, is that you something have to have against? the people who are within the unions to oh, adopt so, a German attitude so, towards companies so, uh, and vice versa, and that so, doesn't exist. So Americans can only produce the Department of Labor we have and can't change anything about it. I'm saying that looking at Germany and then trying we might to as well give up as conservatives. Union, no, but you are you are pretending that by objecting to the development of a German system of unions in the United States that I am in some way defending the existing Department of Labor. I'm not. I am saying that what Cass wants is this idealized view of the relationship in his mind between unions and private corporations and that it doesn't exist in America. That is not the philosophical political framework under which we live. We don't have the same political parties in Germany. We don't have the same political presumptions in Germany. I mean, one of the things that he said, I think, last month and credit to him for acknowledging it, is that the only way that his ideas will work is if the two parties can somehow drop the profound differences in opinion on these topics that they currently exhibit. Well, okay, (laughs) that's fine. But that's like having a foreign policy that says, well, the only way that my pacifism will work is if we can convince every other country in the world to be nice. I mean, we just don't live in the country that Oren Cass wants. And I will give him some credit. He often acknowledges that. I, I think that's, I think it's, by the way, way overstating it. I mean, it's like, it, and it's also ignoring American history itself. I mean, we had industrial policy from mm-hmm. the founding of this country. Well, but had is the operative word there, Michael. 89% of American workers are not union members. 
because they have been offered only recently the choice to decline to have their wages garnished by an organization that doesn't represent their interests anymore. We, yeah, we I think, about I think Michael's point, though, is that they want. I think Michael's point, though, right, is that we, we had Hamilton, Hamiltonian economics at the beginning. We had Lincolnian economics, you know, for, for a huge part of the middle. Uh, so th- this is not necessarily an, an unworkable or un-American uh, thing in principle. It's not foreign, and people who advocate for it shouldn't talk about it in foreign terms. That undermines their own case. But we do reject what the apparent interests of workers are when we talk about the need to bolster union membership. Who's organizing? Who are the people clamoring for unions right now? As a prelude to the shuttering of an institution, you can see union membership spiking in uh, content mills that you know produce oh, I, like BuzzFeed, I, I that, pro- I, that produce the, the very highly educated people. But we're all uh, in agreement that the current state of unions is is abysmal and, mm-hmm. uh, and unsustainable. I mean, that's... that's. But I attribute that, that to market forces and individual preference. Right. Well, I also I attribute it to the way that the Department of Labor structures unions and also the way that regulatory demands from Washington drained unions of anything to, to bargain about um, other than how much money is going to go to the Democratic Party. I mean, one of the one of the things that, um, you know, Cass wants to see happen is for um, OSHA to go away so that union members can argue for what would actually make their jobs safer uh, or not, or not, or more effective. Um, let them make their own calculations about risks at a more local level to the jobs being done rather than having Washington do it. Uh, but again, like that, again, this is about opening up the discussion of what, mm-hmm. what we're actually talking about as far as what is a free market is OSHA part of the free market or is it, or is it not is, can we talk about those rules or where else those decisions can be made, whether they're made by management or management in consultation with workers? Um, those are things that can be um, altered by just altering the law. And and the thing is, the, the law is not absent. It's not like I'm arguing necessarily for vast new government agencies. A lot of the proposals are about taking the existing laws and amending them so that you're encouraging investment in America rather than investment abroad or encouraging um, investment in capital intense industries or asset intense industries rather than asset light and employment light industries. Um, You know, and other, he said other nations do this. In fact, it's the only thing that successful nations other than ours do, right? I mean, if we really believed that um, that government industrial policy poisons all enterprises that it ends up supporting, then Toyota should be the worst car company on the planet, right? Rather than what it is, it yeah. should it should be the most ineffective, in, most ineffective. It should have every. It should be Lada. It should be the Soviet Lada. But in so, fact, so it and, is and, not that. So, MBD, I'm going I'm to give you the last last word since, as usual, it's three against one, or uh, or, or maybe maybe. Two and a half or two, two and three quarters against one. Because I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, uh, imposed in principle to uh, discussing s- some of this stuff, um, and I think some of it, some of it, makes sense. But uh, to be continued as always on this topic. But exit question. In the meantime, to you, Noah Rothman, JD Vance represents the future of Republican economic thinking. Yes or no? 
I mean, God help us, because that means the future of economic thinking is is going to be outsourced to Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> and I'm not sure. This is why so he's do, getting. Do you think, do you this think is why that? he's getting such praise because he's crossing the aisle. He's forming bonds and really legitimizing ideas that don't deserve. But to do be you think he, that the tide is in in his direction? No, I don't. Charlie. No, I think J.D. Vance, rather than representing the future, represents Ohio. And that's why he talks as he does. The challenge for Sherrod Brown in Ohio is to hold J.D. Vance-esque economic views and not push too far socially. The challenge for J.D. Vance in Ohio is to hold Sherrod Brown-esque economic views and, and keep his social views front and center and... You know, that approach is just not the one that is on vogue where Republicans are ascendant or have been ascendant, which is in the Sun Belt. This is not what you see out of the great models of Republican governance, Florida or Texas or Georgia. Um, I don't think J.D. Vance is, is the future. I think it's a regional faction. MBD is J.D. Vance's future. Uh Hmm. I would like him to be, but he won't be because what we'll continue to have is a leadership class that preaches that only pure free market economics can produce good gains while they get rich selling the future to China. <laughs> so I'm going to say yes in the sense that this this is the, this is going to wax, this way of thinking is going to continue to wax rather than wane. It's just that Taking over enough of the party, or just even just a critical mass of the party, to to get some of the stuff done is 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 still uh, far away, in my estimation. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus. Let me do it the same way I did last time. If you enjoyed that discussion, if you thought it was illuminating, if you thought it was civil but frank. This is what we do all the time. We do it on podcasts. We do it on videos. We do it in the print magazine. We do it on the website. We love ideas. We love this country. What what's what what what's best for it? And we're willing to argue out what that is as appropriate. And there's very few places that uh, have ever done this, or at least do it anymore. And uh, NR is one of them. And I humbly suggest that if you appreciate what we do, you just pay a little bit for our content. Not much. It's really not expensive, but just just a little bit helps a lot. So please, if you're not already, consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR+. We're running a little long here, so let's do our final topic, exit question style Barack Obama and Tim Scott, Charlie, had back and forth about race in America, where Obama made this typical left-wing critique of minority conservatives. Tim Scott is just basing his view of America on his his own experience, which is the exception. There's this hideous past of racism that still has this terrible imprint on the country, so I don't want to hear it from Tim Scott unless he, he truly grapples with, with that past and w- what it means for contemporary America. And you had Tim Scott saying, no, I, 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 want, I want to lift people up. And it's, it's very much possible in America. Who's right, Barack Obama or Tim Scott? Well, Tim Scott's right. And it's somewhat disingenuous of, um, 
Obama to pretend that Tim Scott doesn't grapple with and acknowledge and put front and center the history of the United States because he does. In, in fact, that's what he compares himself to. He talks often of his grandfather who had little education and was a sharecropper. His whole point is, look how far we have come. You can't go far unless you started somewhere that was a long way away. Tim Scott has, has used that image in basically every single speech he has ever given. I, I would just, as I know we're short on time, point out that while I do not think, of course, that Barack Obama is a racist, if you take what Barack Obama said and you change a few words around, it could sound pretty racist. I mean, there is a weird... There is a weird connection at the moment between the way that many people on the left talk about African-Americans and their prospects and the way that so-called race realists, that is, mm-hmm. white supremacists on the right, talk about African-Americans. It. Yeah, it's original sin without redemption, that whatever mm-hmm. you do, you have no agency. The, the forces of nature and history and biology have conspired against you, so give it up. Sure, a few people might get through, but they're the exception. They're the lucky ones. And I just think that's a revolting way of looking at the world. And I also think, as Tim Scott points out, that it's statistically wrong. Yes, of course, there are still consequences of the horrible racial history uh, that the United States has exhibited. But if you cannot see that we are better off as a country than we have ever been in this regard, then you're either blind or you are willfully myopic. So, MBD, who is right, Obama or Scott? Somewhat briefly. (laughs) I'm sorry, I got to rage at Obama here. This man is such a fraud. He grew up in Hawaii. The worst Mm -hmm. racism he ever experienced was from his own vice president, Joe Biden, calling him an articulate (laughs) and clean person. This guy didn't grow up getting his ass kicked in the south side of Chicago by racist white cops. Give me a freaking break. He has no reason. He has no standing to talk about Tim Scott and whether Tim Scott understands the American racial experience. Tim Scott lived it. Obama didn't. I mean, it's just... Total outrage. <laughs> no. I, I mean, I don't want to compete with that because I share those sentiments exactly. I do want to <laughs> ding him for the fact that in mischaracterizing uh, his remarks in this in the comments that he made, Obama did give himself an out by saying that he doesn't, quote, spend a lot of time studying Tim Scott's speeches before critiquing them. Um, it is, it's a really <laughs> self-serving and obnoxious narrative because the design here is to tar Republican voters as racist because the minorities that they like and support sugarcoat America's racist past and present. Um, it's, an instru- an ob- it's an instrument of utility for Barack Obama, and it's a, it's a slander uh, on Republicans and the candidates that he's crit- critiquing here. Yeah, the other thing, when, when the left was in a different mood, a more optimistic mood about a, America back in 2004, 2008, a version of Tim Scott's message was basically Barack Obama's message. It was yes. his message in the, the 2004 famous— uh, Right, but he never believed it. He never believed any of it because the, the story of America is a morality play to him at which he is the center. Mm-hmm. His fortunes are directly tied to whether or not we are emerging from our racist past or succumbing to it. Why? Then he should be very pro-America right now because what does he have, $100 million? Mm-hmm. I mean, if his fortunes is a man— two-time president, still universally praised by the people whose opinion he craves, extremely rich, bestowed all manner of gifts. I find this bizarre. 
All right, so let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you enjoyed a Father's Day feast. Uh, yeah, so tradition in our family, going back for many years, my father-in-law has done a surf and turf kind of feast for Father's Day where we boil, you know, we have clams, oysters, lobster, and skirt steak. And the tradition keeps growing. Uh, all of his children are married. All of the the children now, all of his four children have children themselves This for the first year this year. Um, all of my in-laws are, my brothers-in-law are fathers now. And with a few cousins and uh, uncles along the way, we had seven fathers and a great feast. And we also this year added freshly caught shark, shark that had been caught the day before off the Jersey Shore uh, on Saturday. And it was unbelievably delicious uh, on the grill. Awesome. Uh, Noah, you also enjoyed a Father's Day feast. Yeah, same thing. But now I'm starving to death. That sounded fantastic. <laughs> um, yep, same same situation. Uh, three generations of Rothman men yes. in the Rothman, Rothman. compound. Um, my father-in-law, my brother, uh, everybody, you know, celebrating, celebrating the work that we do. Just the tireless uh, efforts on behalf of our of our children and our families. You know, so it was very nice and um, splashed around in the pit, in the pool with the kids, and I very much enjoyed it. So, Charlie, unfortunately, you're on the other end of the food chain, at least potentially from a shark, a remote-controlled one. Yes, my light item also relates to a shark, but not one you would want to eat, because it's made of plastic imported from China. Sorry, Michael. (laughs) It is a remote-controlled swimming pool shark, and it is pretty cool. It's pretty realistic, the way that it moves left and right as it swims in the water. My kids were delighted to give me this for Father's Day and then to chase me around the pool with it. And I will say that even though I know that it is a plastic remote control shark, even though I put the batteries in it myself, even though I set it up, there's still something scary about looking at a shark coming straight at you in a swimming pool that is probably hardwired into the back of the brain. So I went last week through a a generous friend to see a Subway Series game at City Field. Hadn't been to City Field in a while. It's a beautiful ballpark. Really, really nice. But they pump in just an incredible amount of sound throughout this game totally gratuitous uh, you know by the end i was like i need ear protect- protection it's like being at a concert or an, a nascar race or something so uh nice folks there's there's a nicer feel to city field than, than yankee stadium e- even the new yankee stadium there, there's a much nicer feel to the city field to the, the old yankee stadium where there's always like a, um, a, a hint of of, of malice <laughs> And threat at any given moment, which played into the, the incredible energy at Yankee Stadium. But uh, besides the sound, I had a perfectly nice time with that. It is time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Jim Garrity's uh, Do Wuhan Institute of Virology Scientists Often Fall from the Building's Roof? Uh, just one of his, his dispatches. He's been keeping an eye on the lab leak theory from the beginning and still is on it and um his coverage is still essential as it ever was no rothman what's your pick honorable mention to you 
Rich, for the check out the variety of the latest Pride Pride flags. Wow, thank you. Rock in the month of June. Some spectacular graphic design. Yeah. In that you. one, um, you. you should check it I was, out. For I, was, pr- I was uh, proudest of the American Pride flag. <laughs> I like the all gender Pride flag, which is <laughs> the busiest. Uh, piece of work I've ever seen, but it's worth checking that out for that alone. But my uh, pick goes to Beckett Adams. The press is making a huge mistake with regard to uh, Donald Trump um, and the coverage of Donald Trump and the boosterism of Donald Trump, not for all the obvious reasons, but for the simple fact that he has become utterly predictable and as a result, rather boring. So if they think the rewards on the back end of of a second Trump nomination are going to be increased viewership, they probably have another thing coming. Charlie. Mine is by Noah. It's Noah filling in for Jim Garrity, who will be back next week doing the morning jolt. And I said earlier that it depends what you're looking at, whether or not Donald Trump's performance with Brett Baer was useful. But of course, that doesn't change the fact that he's under indictment. And that at some point, the bill for these interviews and the bill for his total disregard for good advice is going to come due. And in the first part of this morning, Joel, Noah points that out in great detail, that Trump seems absolutely determined at every stage to say on television, at rallies, on tape, if need be, that he is unable to make the one defense that he has available to him, which was that as president, he took advantage of the nebulous declassification rules, and thereby none of these charges apply. Well, Trump keeps, as Noah points out, saying, no, well, I I had documents that I hadn't declassified because I wasn't president anymore, which essentially is game, set, and match for that defense. So I'm going to violate the rules and pick one of my own pieces. It's up this morning. These people have to be stopped. Please help us do it. It is a webathon pitch uh, based on the incredible, I believe, coverage we've had of the trans insanity. We've reported. We've excoriated these people. We've mocked them as necessary. We have two young women who almost exclusively cover this beat, Carolyn Downey and our, our, uh, the editor's own Maddie Kearns, who are very brave and willing to take any amount of uh, abuse to, to keep going on this. So if you appreciate that, please consider chipping into our webathon. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and you rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine. It's strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Made in Cookware. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. See you next time.